and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How do we measure things more effectively? How do we do it all better? What is actually going on here? No one really knows, but our guest may. Before we introduce our guest, I want to make sure that you know who the other voices are on this podcast. I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. I'm never doing that again. I apologize. And then we have Justin Dorfin. Justin, how are you? I can't get my vocals that high, but hi. Good. How are you? <laughs> good, good. We also have Alyssa Wright, who will be joining us in a second. She's not here to say hello now, but I will not be imitating her voice in a high-pitched fashion because that would be wrong. Our guest today is Julia Ferrioli. Julia is an open source human calling in today from Seattle. Julia has been a part of the Sustain community for a while. She was at the Sustain event in Brussels. She's raising her eyebrows and oh, is that true? Kind of true. I think you think about open source and you think about sustaining code that makes you a member of the community at large. And we will use your membership to No, I'm going to move on. Julia, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Richard. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So we introduced you as open source human. That means you may not currently have a job at the moment or you're starting a new job soon. Can you tell me a bit more about maybe your history and how you got here? Yeah. So I've been kind of in and around maybe the fringes and in and out of the core part of open source for maybe like 15 years or so. And I've done a bunch of different jobs within that, like most people in open source. I've been a software engineer. I've been a developer advocate, community manager sort of thing. And most recently, I've been working with and in open source programs offices at companies. So I spent almost 10 years at Google. I just finished up a stint at Twitter, and I'm currently between jobs right now. But I call myself a human because I'm a Swiss army knife and people get kind of twitchy when I reference something that could potentially cut people. So human sounds better. That actually makes a lot of sense. You co-founded open source stories. Uh, can you tell me a bit about what that was or is? Sure. So Amanda Kasari and I, we worked together at Google's OSPO, Open Source Programs Office. And we were starting up a research project with the University of Vermont Complex Systems Center called Project Ocean, which is cleverly open source, complex ecosystems and networks. Just ignore the S in source and it makes sense. But one of the things that became a difficulty in that work was the lack of peripheral data. Mm in how we look at open source and how we actually perform quantitative and qualitative research. And when we were talking with ecosystem experts, we were talking primarily with languages and the experts in those communities. There was so much that came out of those conversations that was unwritten. There's no place you could go and look up some of the things that we were being told. So yep. one of the things that we really started to think about was how do we capture these stories? How do we capture these, this kind of oral history 
of open source. And so we started Open Source Stories, which is a community project that relies on StoryCorps, which is a great organization. And all of our stories wind up in the Library of Congress, the U.S. Library of Congress, which is cool. And we talk to people and we capture their stories and we try to make work that isn't necessarily always visible, visible. Can I resign from this podcast and just help out with that one? That sounds mm. awesome. <laughs> so. We could honestly use the help. So if you would like to come and help out, we would love it. Yeah. I'm not often a guest on podcasts, which is weird. I've hosted somewhere around 200 at the moment. I honestly don't know. I've lost count. Probably my like most meaningful podcast experience was actually with this researcher from the University of Macquarie, I think, where they had emailed an AORED. They're trying to build up an AORED of people, 6,000, like 10 minute interviews with people about how they felt about and their story of their appreciation for Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's work. It was the best thing ever. It was really awesome. I just got to talk for like 10 minutes about like how Lord of the Rings has personally influenced and like motivated and changed my entire life, which is, this isn't the Richard Litauer hour, so I'll leave that alone. But that also ended up in a research project on something like StoryCorps. So I just love the idea of taking stories themselves and putting them somewhere. That's the best. We try and do that here but we tend to have a particular purpose. So I don't know. I'm just really appreciative for the work you and Amanda Kasseri are doing. I'm glad you brought her up. She is also a panelist on sustainment, of course. Well, I guess a question I have for you is I often hear you two mentioned together. You're often tweeting at each other. It often seems like your partner's in crime. I want to know about the story of that relationship and how you ended up doing all this work together. Oh, Amanda's the best. Can we turn this into Amanda Appreciation Hour? We could. She's not here, so that'd be fine. fine. Um, I think Amanda's the best because of what she focuses on though, so we can still focus on both. So we came into each other's like work lives kind of by coincidence. She was thinking about the Python 2 to 3 migration. That was kind of the era. And Dark times. times. Yeah, dark times for all of us. The two towers of the open source world. Yes. And she was talking about some of the complexities of measuring the work that goes into it. And we just had like the best conversation. And I started in computer science research. That's my background. And she was poking all of those buttons that hadn't gotten activated in so long. They were dusty. And it was just so thought-provoking. And we got into all of these various topics around how are we actually putting work into open source that isn't necessarily being measured, recognized, etc. And so we kind of just spur each other on. We're different concepts. And we pitched this wild idea to management to give away a million dollars to fund this research grant, which I cannot believe actually happened. I can't believe we actually made that happen. And since then, we've just been working together. She's a fantastic collaborator. And we send each other papers, we send each other notes and books and all of that good stuff. So we definitely are 
I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, which nobody can see, but the conversations that we have tend to lead to some really interesting explorations. Like one of our talks was about black swans in open source. And that was looking at pivotal events in open source history that really changed practices and that we could easily like make sense of in hindsight. But at the time, they were just completely unexpected. And that's kind of come up again and again and again. And we've got this running log of notes of, okay, well, now we have to add log for j to that doc. Now we have to, to add this and this incident. And we're building up this great timeline and wealth of resources of, okay, what was the event? What was the cause? What was the unwritten cause? And what was the impact? What changed afterwards? And it's just some really interesting areas that I don't think get enough attention because of how critical and how rushed people were in the moment. Yeah, I can think of a few things that were black swans, like Heartbleed. I think that one was probably one of the biggest eye-openers to the industry at large because everyone thought, well, it's open SSL. It's 80% of the web. They, Of course, they have all the funding they need. And then it was just, once the flashlight was signed in, it was like, OMG. So I think it's good that happened because, well, it sucked. I remember patching servers. You know, it was all hands on deck, a little CDN I worked at. What it was great for open source sustainability is it started the CII at the Linux Foundation. And yeah, I mean, just all these things, it brought... Nadia Ekbal to the scene. So yeah, I think that while black swans can be good or bad, I think in the end, they're really all good because they help progress and push things forward. It's interesting that you say black swans, because I would actually argue Log4j and Heartbleed weren't black swans because you have to be surprised for it to be a black swan. And I guess one of the weird things about black swans is it doesn't really say, like, how do you measure what surprises? I was just furiously Googling Nassim Taleb and like the Wikipedia article on black swans right now. So Julia, I guess I'm curious, how do you quantify a black swan open source? I think it's completely subjective. Okay, cool. I think a lot of things that I would put in the black swans kind of bucket are things that might not necessarily be a surprise to those of us who have been working in open source sustainability for as long as we have. Heartbleed, I would say, was a black swan event because of how unprepared we were for that. The one that gets talked about a lot is, is Leftpad. Leftpad was a black swan because of the impact and the just general wake-up call it was for the open source community. So there's no strict definition. You must be this tall to be a black swan, but it's more characterization than a criteria. Okay, that helps me out. I appreciate that. That makes me really want to see the list that you have. It's also interesting looking at your career path, et cetera, through the idea of tracing these 
say black swans are looking at open source and the stories they're in and what's happening. The ocean grant to UVM, a lot of that is based on the idea of having responsible recognition for open source contributions, if I remember correctly. So I'm curious, what black swan are we preparing for? If we think about like recognitions of people's involvement as being something that needs to be shored up. I'm curious about your thoughts about that. I think it's hard to say that we're preparing for a black swan in terms of recognition, because I think it's kind of one of those, you can't be an an accidental genius or you can't intentionally be an accidental genius sort of thing. But in terms of recognition, one of the things that I do worry about us falling into some sort of trap is hyper-focusing on metrics and code. And it is really, really difficult to measure contributions that aren't code or aren't captured in some sort of stack trace, if you will, the open source stack trace, which is now something I'm going to be using from now on. But we've made really good strides in recognizing contributions outside of code, like technical writing and triage and code reviews. But there's so much more that makes open source projects go than just that. How do you recognize event organization? Blogs that take place off the primary domain, people who run dev experience or user experience studies, design work, accessibility work, marketing. Like, how do you recognize all of that in a way that encourages those contributions and makes open source a more mature place to be, which is really important coming from, you know, I've been working in open source for companies. It's really important as more and more companies are relying on open source because it makes it into products. It makes it into the technology that people use on a daily basis, more so than it already is now. So how do we get more representation? How do we place the importance on those things as well as we do with code? I don't really have a question because it just resonates a lot, right? How do we do that? I had a conversation this morning with a maintainer where we were talking about how do you measure the context that people have or how do you do more than deplore the lack of ability to measure the context that a maintainer has or the impact of a designer or a marketer or a PM, et cetera, on an open source project. And it's really very tough. 100% resonates as well. And there's really not a question per se, but as you were speaking, I was wondering if there are people that are contributing to open source projects that don't feel recognized and acknowledged. Is there like an invisible community that we're trying to not only grow and diversify, Absolutely. I think that in a lot of cases, the communities that aren't present in open source are the ones that have been turned away in some form or fashion by lack of recognition. So if you see that people are complaining about the lack of, let's go with design in some open source projects, Designers are interested in contributing to open source, but 
generally it's not prioritized. It's not really encouraged and it's not rewarded in the same way that contributing a feature is to a project. So whenever you see missing communities that you would ordinarily see in a closed source proprietary project, those are people that are not being recognized and rewarded for their contributions. I have an anecdote to add. I just finished the Z shell logo for ZSH project and I worked with the designer. I was the art director and the designer was Geese. That's what she goes by. And getting listed in the readme and seeing her work on Wikipedia, that was something she was like, because I was like, in the beginning, I was like, this is going to be huge. And she's just like, oh, okay. Yeah, great. And then when she saw it on Wikipedia, it was like, oh, whoa, this is like my works on Wikipedia. So I think it's like, if you have these like bigger projects, not saying that smaller projects are bad, but I was lucky enough to know her. She was a non-code contributor for years. And I just happened to work with her at a company and then just kept in touch and gave her paying jobs. And then we would do stuff like the Z shell logo. So it was an amazing experience working with her and also trying to get her recognition with her name being in the style guide that's in the Z shell repository, you know, the official repository. So her work lives on her name works on and yeah, definitely we'll get her on the sustained design podcast for sure. And that's something that I kind of want to dig into since you mentioned kind of paying for the design work. We talk a lot about funding projects. That's a, a never ending topic of discussion. And, you know, you can sponsor developers on GitHub. Can you sponsor a designer on GitHub? That's a great question. Not on GitHub. You can do it on Open Collective. Ah. But like not on GitHub natively yet. Also can't do it for translators. Right. So there's a lot of props, definite props to Open Collective. But in terms of how we think about who should be compensated for their work, like if somebody wanted to make their living as a designer for a UX researcher, for open source projects. Is there an easy path for them to do that? No, the answer is no. So like we also have another podcast called Sustaining Open Source Design, where we talk to designers about open source and sustaining code and how like they meet together. And no, not a single one of our guests has said, actually, it's been really easy. I really liked my career and everything is great and everyone loves and contributes to me. And I have a, a monument outside. Every single person says like, yeah, I don't know how I ended up here. It's really hard. I love design. <laughs> That's kind of it. Right? And designers actually have a little bit of a leg up too, because it's pretty common for designers to have portfolios. But for other areas, for folks doing accessibility work or translation, they may not have that. And so how do we recognize and build their open source portfolio in the same way that we do for engineers? How do we get them sustained throughout their career? So we're talking a lot about the importance of recognition. And this is a 
about open source sustainability. I was wondering if you could speak more to like how those two intersect for you. Like, why do we have to recognize people in order to sustain the open source software communities? Ooh, I'm going to say something potentially controversial here. And this is something actually that Nadia Edbal touched on in her book, Working in Public, which is talking about cults of personality in open source. People get hired, they get opportunities, they get paid for their work in open source based on the name that they build for themselves. And that ties directly into recognition. Like if nobody knows you're involved in an open source project, that tends to exclude you from some of these areas of community, of participation, of opportunity. And that goes to diversity and inclusion. That goes to the fidelity, the sustainability of the projects themselves. And with open source becoming more and more important in the world, especially during the the increase we've seen during the pandemic, that is making a big gap in how we think about open source, open source contributions and open source recognition. And we don't want to devalue the work that isn't getting your recognized. It's cyclical. It's a very cyclical thing because when we focus on recognizing code, things that are easy to measure, it's not a zero-sum game, but it kind of gets presented as one occasionally. Well, what was the controversial part? Talking about the cults of personality. Cults of personality in tech We don't like to think of things as reputation-based as much as they are. And they will hire based on a GitHub profile, based on a name. And that is potentially widening the gap between the people who have the, the privilege to contribute to open source and the people who want to. I would argue it's not just about hiring. People are more likely to use Cintrasaur Hess's packages. Because they're more likely to have used one already and be like, oh, okay, that one worked fine. I'm going to use another one. And then they don't look a lot further. That's a single example of one developer, but there are many examples similar. I guess for me, the question that I've been having for a while beyond recognition of individuals and how do we make sure the recognition is evil across the board is how do we actually make sure that recognition of individuals doesn't become the norm, but rather we recognize a community of practice as being something that's more important than individuals. Well, I really don't want to appeal to like noble savage arguments and be just a stereotypical armchair philosopher. But like, I want to move away from Western capitalist structures that like highlight the individual. And I think that a lot of recognition schemes for designers and like are kind of a patch on the problem, but they don't take away the underlying legs. They don't solve the problem for good. And so I guess one of my questions for you, Julia, is I don't know if this has an answer is how do we think of projects and communities of practice and communities of contributors as being something that can be recognized in itself without having to individually improve the portfolio of every single person so that they can be more productive and better in the assembly line of like open source code. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I love that. I do not 
have an answer, but I think that this goes back to kind of the unintentional consequences of actions, right? Is it a good thing that we call out individual people? Does this trace its roots back to the whole concept of a benevolent dictator for life? It might, but the question becomes like, okay, what are the motivations here? Why do people contribute to open source? And what makes them want to continue? For some people, it is the recognition. For some people, it's the community. For some people, it's the technology itself. Some get paid to do it. Some get paid to do it. And some have no choice because we don't want to conflate capitalism with our discussion here. It is a factor for a lot of people who don't necessarily have a lot of time, a lot of at-home technology. Getting paid to do open source may actually be their only opportunity to do so. So, I mean... If you take a look at the motivations behind why people contribute to open source, are there enough that are community and a community of practice focused to make it work in the long run? Again, no questions, no answers, just like lots of, hmm, yes, I feel that. I, I guess a, a, something that arose for me while you were mentioning that is I really like the comment that not everyone has a choice to contribute to open source because that's something we don't talk about enough. I think the majority of the times when we paint open source personas, we paint them as this is a person who works on the weekends or maybe at the company for like three hours a week. And a lot of times it's actually not the case. Something that arose as a secondary comment out of that is a lot of the ways that we highlight individuals, we highlight their specific contributions that were relevant towards the projects that is useful to us we don't highlight the holistic person behind those contributions. And we don't think about their state necessarily and how they actually created the thing that they're then creating. So when we think about an open source developer, I often think of, and I'm guilty of this, which makes sense. I think a lot of us are guilty of this, but something I need to challenge in myself. I think of just a normal, well, normal's a horrible word. See, there I am, I'm doing it again. I think of a weird person, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, white bro from like New England, because that's who I am. And that's what I see in the mirror every day. It's not great, but that's obviously not all of open source. So I guess something that I'm curious about to turn this slightly into a question is what can we do to recognize the full facets of types of people who work on open source, as well as the way they contribute to the project? How can we recognize, say, coders with disabilities or minority coders or coders who are really good at design in particular, and that's what they want to be mentioned for, but also their whole person elsewhere? Maybe that question is too broad, but what do you think? Well, it's interesting because there tend to be two camps that I've encountered. One camp is... It's not the person who matters, it's the contribution that matters. And the other camp is, it's the entire thing that matters. It's the contribution, it's the context behind it, it's where they want to go, how they want to be involved. And it feels kind of split down the middle in terms of which camp is currently leading. So 
I think that there are a number of projects out there that have been working on recognizing contributors as whole people, but not necessarily within the context of the project itself. So with open source stories, we're not affiliated with a specific open source project besides our own. But we rarely see profiles of people working on X, Y, and Z project within the context of that project itself. And maybe that's something that we can do, but we also have to recognize there are going to be unintended consequences there. And not everybody is going to be able to participate in that space. I have the lovely experience of having a a longtime stalker, I guess. I mean, I've made the deliberate choice to be in public despite that. But there are a lot of people who might not be able to have a profile highlighting them because of safety concerns. So you kind of have to take a multifaceted approach to how do we recognize a person, a contributor as the whole person in a way that makes sense for them and that is appropriate for them. And the long and short of what I just said is it depends and it's hard. I guess a follow-up question then that I have is in open source, so you said there are two camps, right? There's the camp that says only the contribution matters and the other one says the whole person matters. And I realized that the question of mattering is actually relevant there because it's applying a diagnostic and a heuristic that is then used to judge people. And we're all talking about, again, as abstract as we're being, we're trying to talk about how do we make open source more sustainable and how do we understand the ecosystem at large? And so one of the things I think you probably thought about is what mattering means. And so I'm really curious what heuristics you apply or are there any that's have seemed novel to you recently or what would you think about that? Hmm, That's a really good question. And in terms of what matters, I think there's like what matters to the whole ecosystem. There's what matters to a sub ecosystem, what matters to a project. So in terms of what matters to a project, it really depends on the goals of that project. The heuristics are going to change project to project, ecosystem to ecosystem. So for a hypothetical project that I might have, my primary goal might be, I want as many first-time contributors as humanly possible. Like I want this to be the project where people make their first ever pull request. I think though that In general, we get ourselves into trouble when we try to define metrics and heuristics that are right across the board. And this is where we get into some difficulty, especially when doing research in open source, because we're trying to compare ecosystems that may only have the fact that they are open source in common. And that's like comparing, you know, apples to meteors, which is actually bad because they're both vaguely round. Meteors don't have enough internal gravity to form a spheroid, so they could be any. Perfect. Great. I learned something today. 
Next. Uh, I also think an apple is just <laughs> a berry. Technical definition of a berry is really eggplant is a berry. My um, mind has just exploded. What? Eggplants are berries? And nightshades. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm out of here. I knew that. FODMAPs. Yeah. Julia, running with the idea that we can't compare stuff. So in my head this whole time, I'm like, okay, this is a researcher. What do we ask a researcher? Because this is someone who likes like looking at the big picture and being like, where are the cracks in the system? And then how do we fix it? I know you've done work or at least thought about the concept of standardizing open source information. But it seems to me that all you're talking about right now is don't standardize open source information because you can't. It's like inherently apples and swans. So I'm curious, what do you work on when you work on standardizing open source information? Well, right now I'm looking primarily at what makes an open source project go. How does an open source project operate? What are the resources? Where do things happen? And that's kind of the information I'm looking to standardize, but still trying to be as flexible as possible. So right now I'm, I'm writing a, a series of articles on the social, what I'm calling the social model of open source. And it's all of the things that people generally like to see that maybe aren't explicit in the readme or in the docs. We know generally where code lives. We know generally where the docs live or the issue tracker, what have you. But what about like, where do different discussions happen? What are the channels? What are the, the key parts of an open source project that isn't necessarily apparent? Like, what's the affiliation? Who runs it? If we had had some knowledge that there were only one or two maintainers of OpenSSL, could we have identified the problem earlier? And also just going with that, and I know we got to wrap up soon. What I've learned in the past just two months with my new role, GitHub is not the open source universe. I was blown away knowing that the Fedora project, it has their own infrastructure. And I'm just like, Oh, I just figured everyone was on GitLab or GitHub and I was, I was wrong. I was very wrong. So thank you for bringing that up because a lot of people don't understand is a lot of amazing things happen off of GitHub. Absolutely. Oh, I always like to throw in a mention of, of SourceForge. Yeah. Zshell uses SourceForge. And don't forget the majority of open source code in China probably isn't on GitHub. True. Um, and they probably have the majority of developers in terms of percentage of population. This is one of the few podcasts where I actually lost track of time entirely that almost never happens to me. So I'm just really like, thank you. I actually just emailed my editor being like, how do I have four hour podcasts like Tim Ferriss has? What do I have to do? So we're going to have to have you back on to look at these maybe in more depth or failing that. Where can people find out about this thing that you're currently writing? Where can they find your work online? Do you have Twitter, do you have a blog, et cetera, et cetera. Well, right now they are on the lead dev site. So, and, and luckily I have a pretty unique name. So you can find me pretty easily. My Twitter handle is Julia Ferrioli. I try to be pretty consistent, even if it's hard to spell. And you can find some of my writings on my own site, which is just juliaferrioli.com. Luckily, no one took that. For that is very useful. Yeah. yeah. Weird. Julia, that's excellent. 
because of time restrictions, we do have to wrap up, but that's Julia Ferrioli, F-E-R-R-A-I-O-L-I, or just Aioli, I guess. Thank you so much. Don't leave yet because now we have Spotlight. Spotlight is part of the show where we get to talk about things that are not ourselves and our own thoughts, but rather people, places, open source projects, whatever, which we feel just need more love and light and just should have the Spotlight show on them. Justin Dorfman, you're traditionally the first to go. What is your Spotlight today? Honestly, I know it's taboo to mention your own things, but it's on the subject. The non-code contributor, a weekly newsletter that highlights the open source contributors you never heard of, just go to twitter.com slash jdorfman and smash that start reading button and you'll be subscribed. <laughs> I never actually heard of that. That's amazing. Awesome. Thank you. Cool. That's great. I'm right up there with open source stories, which you can find by Googling open source stories. I also think it's open source stories.org. Yes, it is. Alyssa Wright, what is your spotlight? Well, first, I'd like to make a correction. Apples are not berries. Um, they are okay. palms, but plants, still berries, <laughs> bananas, berries. Maybe that's what I'm spotlighting. It could be berries. Strawberries are not berries. But in my open source world, it's a beautiful day here in New York. It's like the beginnings of spring. I feel like people are coming out. They're meeting each other in real life. And that part of like community that I think has been, I know, missing in, in my open source world and I'm sure for many others, it's really exciting to have that part of our sustainability back for at least a moment. Thank you, Alyssa. Spotlighting Wikipedia for quick searches and then seasons for being the best. My spotlight today is actually going to be not McQuarrie University, but Marquette University. M-A-R-Q-U-E-T-T-E, and the J.R.R. Tolkien Fandom Oral History Collection. They're still taking interviews, I think. So please, if you want to join the AOR Red, if you want to go and have your story of how you came to Lord of the Rings and how Tolkien showed you the light, feel free to go there. Also, let's accept that Tolkien has a lot of issues and Lord of the Rings is really focused on male characters, et cetera, et cetera. We could do better, but I really like this project. Julia, what's your spotlight? So I want to use my spotlight for a research paper that is not open source related. Actually, I think it might be a dissertation. I'm not actually sure, but it's called Chalk. And it is a fascinating paper that Aaron McKean sent to me. It is from the University of Edinburgh, and it is called Chalk Materials and Concepts in Mathematics Research. And I feel like there is so much in that paper that relates to open source in some way about how information is represented, the act of writing, the act of outlining, and how the materials that we use influence our work. I couldn't put it down. It was like reading a novel. So highly recommend that is cool. All right. Thank you very much. I will look forward to reading that paper. Julia, it's been a real honor to have you on. Thank you so much. Guest, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. We're sorry for being too abstract, but that's where all the fun stuff is. If you enjoyed it and you want to talk about open source sustainability, please join us. 
You can go to discourse.sustainoss.org. Yes, this is the health insurance part of the podcast. Or you can go to sustainoss at Twitter. Or you can just email us at podcast at sustainoss.org. They'll go to all of the panelists and we will refer you on to another panelist to answer your email. But we would love to hear about cool thoughts about open source sustainability and or any thoughts you have, as well as possible guests. Would you like to come on? Let us know. Always interested in the next cool thing that will help all of us rise all the boats or something similar. Julia, thank you so much again for your work as a source and for coming on. Best of luck on the new job. Looking forward to hearing what it is. And again, thanks. Thank you. Thank you.